0: Turn our attention uh, this morning to the problem with the heart. We started a couple weeks ago with creation of the heart where we just looked at the broad strokes of the scripture and the thousand some odd direct references to the inner person, to the heart of people, and the various words that scripture will use to explain and describe and talk about the inner person or the heart, and yeah, also made reference to just some of the Hundreds and hundreds of indirect references to the heart, just wherever you see the scripture talk about desires or passions or longings or wants, or those are all references to the inner person, to the workings of the inner person. And so, we just looked at some of the implications of just the doctrine of that we're created with a heart, created with a body, but that these two are inseparably interdependent, only to be separated at death, where the body goes in the ground, our souls depart to be with the Lord, and then on the last day. The bodies raised, glorified, reunited to be with the Lord forever. And then last week we talked about the devotion to the heart. What God really wants from us is not just sort of an external, outward, going through the motions religion, but to worship Him in spirit and truth, devotion from the heart toward Him that is then expressed in holy cognitions and holy volition and holy affections affections that are toward him and for him, and then expressed outward through the body, so that we're not just sort of spirits floating around in the world, but with bodies, and that these bodies are now temples of the Holy Spirit, if you're redeemed in Christ, filled with the Spirit, that our hearts are his, meant to be expressed toward him. And now all that outward stuff is still important, but as expressions of a heart that loves him, is devoted to him, delights in him. So we looked at the creation of the heart, and The worship of the heart, the devotion of the heart. And even made the case that everybody everywhere all the time is always worshiping. This is just one of the assumptions you can have in the world. We are created worshipers. We will worship someone. We will worship something. That any time a human being sees the glory of creation, you will be moved to worship. Whether the creation or the creator of that creation. When you really look at people... You see it in the world all around us, right? We're either going to worship people or the God who made people. But we will worship. It's unavoidable. Which then gets us to this morning and this idea of, okay, the problem with the heart. Creation of the heart, devotion of the heart, now the problem with the heart. And so let's go to the Lord in prayer as we jump in. Well, Father, we look to you as the one who will teach us through your word, who will humble us by your word, who will redeem us through the word made flesh, who has dwelt among us, who has lived, who has died, who has been raised, Jesus Christ, the Savior. And so we look to him as the author and perfecter of our faith, as the joy even now set before us, and pray that you would give us hearts to believe, hearts, especially this morning, to receive the hard, weighty humbling, painful truth about what's most wrong with us. Help us to receive it, Lord, that we would look to the really only hope in resolving what's wrong with us. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, shortly after midnight, August 1st, 1966, a man named Charles Joseph Whitman drove over to his mother's house, a former Marine sniper and took her life, and then returned to his own house about 3 a.m. and took the life of his wife. And then later that morning, he's gonna drive with an arsenal of weapons to the University of Texas campus, go into the clock tower, kill the people that are there sort of on the observation deck, both as receptionists, but also just people they're visiting. And then he's gonna bar that observation deck go out onto the roof of that clock tower and begin to rain down bullets on all the unsuspecting innocent people that are there, killing another 11, wounding another 31, before police and even a, I think it was the, a bookstall worker, three police officers and like the bookstall manager are going to go break into that observation deck, take his life, and, and then in all the years since, if you've heard that story, there have been countless attempts to explain why he did what he did. What really went into this decision? They're going to do an autopsy. They're going to find a brain tumor near the amygdala of his brain. And so there's going to be a whole set of people that say, okay, he did this because of this brain tumor, that he wasn't able to control his emotions or his actions. An abusive and perfectionist father who drove him to the brink was another explanation. There are amphetamines in his system. So it was the amphetamines that did this. Feelings of inadequacy and failure after being discharged from the Marine Corps. Some proposed that, sort of a, a mental health explanation. And what's interesting is all those things were true about him. They really did find a tumor in his brain after the autopsy. He really did grow up in a home with a perfectionistic and abusive father. There were amphetamines in his system. There was all kind of inadequacy and fears of failure and anger or bitterness about what had happened to him in recent years. All those things were true, but does Scripture have something more to say than that? Does Scripture sort of take all those pieces but then arrange them in a way that is truly distinctive, that sort of fits within God's worldview? And I think the answer we're going to offer is yes, that those things may be true those outside things, those outside influences. But some of the real cause, the primary problem, is something that's much, much deeper. And we see it culturally every time there's another shooting, another event, another tragedy, another fill in the blank. Everyone scrambles for answers. Why? Why did this person think, feel, and act the way that they did? Why did they act in this way? And so this lesson is going to be about beginning to answer that question. What's really amiss? What's really wrong? Turn, if you would, to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Verse 18. The Apostle Paul is going to write in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven... "...against all ungodliness and righteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth." Very active verb there. Just something in us, naturally, in the flesh, suppresses truth. "...for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them." What does he mean? Well, because his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived." Ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made that you can just look at the creation and God says, clearly I'm displaying my eternal power, my divine nature. It's all there on display so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, meaning that testimony was there, it's not that everybody that's ever lived knows God personally, salvifically. But rather, okay, everybody really knows. That's why you have to suppress the truth. Because the truth is so blatantly obvious from God's point of view. That's important to realize in evangelism. You're not talking to somebody who, you know, who doesn't have evidence around them. That God exists and that God is powerful and that God is to be answered to and that The heart is to be submitted. No, you're you're talking to somebody who is actively in the heart suppressing the truth about him. Just as we did. For although they knew God, they did not, here's the key, honor him as God. Which is why we're going to suppress the truth. Because if I accept the truth that he's there, then I've got to give him honor. Which is the very thing I don't want to give. Apart from grace, apart from Christ. I want to give him honor. Or give thanks to him. I think we need to realize that really is one of the hardest things in the whole universe to actually do, to give thanks, to give thanks to God. Even as a parent, what do you spend a lot of your trying, trying to help your kids do? Be thankful. You're begging them to be thankful. Why is it so hard to help our kids be thankful? Why is it so hard for us to be thankful? Well, because it truly is one of the things that the fallen heart, the sinful heart, least wants to do is give thanks to God. Give thanks to anyone else. But they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts, their already foolish hearts, were darkened. God just turned the lights out. No capacity to really see, comprehend, understand the truth. That the world in which we live, again, apart from Christ, and just the normal fleshly heart, can't see. You know, that things aren't illumined. They're in the dark can't perceive what's going on. We're just groping for it. So what we're going to see next is, so, so God gave them over. And that's going to be one of the themes of the verses after. Like in verse 24 where it says, God gave them up to the lusts of their heart to impurity. They're going to exchange the truth of God for a lie. So verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, God gave them up. One of the scariest things that God could ever do with us is say, fine, have it, what you want. So one of the great mercies of God is the mercy of restraint, of restraining us. But we see that theme there that Paul is not talking about a small segment of the human population, but the human race as a whole, the story of human history, that first and foremost, the human race has a worship problem. That's what we want to see. If anybody asks, well, what's wrong with the world? We just say worship is what's wrong with the world. Always has been the problem with the world. Hearts that don't worship God in spirit and truth. Hearts that worship falsely. It's really not a global warming problem. It's a worship problem. The problem arises from our hearts, not our bodies, from disordered affections, not disordered biochemistry. And yes, the Biochemistry can be disordered. The body is fallen, but what Paul's saying here is, okay, that's really not where it originates. It's not the real source. Disordered affections, disordered worship, dysfunctional loyalties, not dysfunctional families. Even though everybody in some way grew up in some form of dysfunctional family, some far worse than others, What Paul's saying here, the real root, the real bottom of it is dysfunctional loyalties of the heart that we entered into the world with. And our families may have helped or hurt, influenced one direction or another, but Paul's saying the real root there is is a heart that is eager to suppress truth, not honor God, not give thanks, and God gives over. And then a foolish heart becomes darkened. And so you can't really understand Charles Joseph Whitman, not that we can understand all of him, but we can't even begin to understand what's going on there or any other situation like it without God's point of view, without seeing through the lens of Scripture, seeing what only God sees. Though all those other areas of life that I mentioned are real problems, they're not the primary or deepest problem. Despite there being many things wrong with our upbringings, with our physical bodies, with our societies that we live in, the Bible just keeps hammering home. Here's your deepest problem. Here's your greatest need. Here's the primary issue for your life. So one of the implications we'll get to later is it can help us get very, very focused in our lives. All those other things matter, but there's something that matters most that's primary to why we think, feel, and act the way that we do. That natural man thinks his main problem exists outside him, and that the answer exists inside him. That's also true. You read most of the philosophy, self-help stuff of today. The problem is outside you, the answer is inside you. <laughs> yeah, that, you're, all your stuff is messed up the way it is because of all these circumstances. But you can fix it by being more empowered, greater self-esteem, greater, better boundaries. And interesting, just that movement even in the Christian church has taken off, just that you need to make good boundaries. But yet, that's all boundaries protecting you from what? Supposedly. Others, right? Well, who's protecting you from you? Well, what if the, the world doesn't think that's a problem? That's just not our greatest danger. And so that book doesn't sell, right? Like that, that, that really the, the danger is inside. And so what good does it make to build big walls and then to trap yourself with a lion? And yet when the Bible talks about the heart apart from grace, the heart that's under the rule of the flesh, not the spirit, Yeah, the opposite is true. The main problem exists inside me. The answer must come from outside, me. That's why there's a basic assumption in the phrase, just follow your heart. That assumes what? What does that assume? Yeah, that your heart is trustworthy. that Your heart is good. That whatever your heart is going to say to you and want you to do is reliable and going to lead to something good. Where do you ever see that in the Bible where the Bible says, you know what, just trust your heart? Where do you ever see a prophet of God? You know know what, everybody, just follow your heart. Don't worry about what God says. Don't even consult him. Don't pray. Don't go to the Bible. Just do what feels good. So the phrase assumes the heart is basically good. It can be trusted. And many would be, okay, it's it's the most trustworthy guide. And we have to realize that that we're we're susceptible to this. That How often most days do we really think, okay, what I'm seeing is the right way to see it. What I'm feeling is the right way to feel it. What I'm doing is the right way to do it. And it's, it's not because we've sort of rooted it in Scripture and the conviction of the Spirit, applying the Word, and then the counsel of wise people around us. It's just the way we've always seen it or done it. So the God of Scripture wants us to be alert. what the problem in my life is and so that'll bring us to that first main point our hearts are the problem there are many problems in the world many problems that we're going to encounter just this is the one that God says here's okay definitive article the problem Jeremiah 17 6 the heart is more deceitful than all else what a statement if there's anything apart from Christ that our hearts are more than they're anything, it's deceitful. And what does that mean, deceitful? Just shout it out. What, what are synonyms? Hmm? What's that? It tells you partial truths. Doesn't give you the whole story. Untrustworthy. The heart lies to you. Isn't that interesting? That there's a conversation going on inside of us often, and it's without Christ in the middle, it's not an honest one. We really are suckers for whatever you know the heart wants to say. And it says it's deceitful above all else, desperately sick. Who can understand it? I would love to plaster that verse in every psychology department, every sociology department. (laughs) Every, psychi- every medical school, everywhere. Because, yeah, in many ways, we don't believe that. Who can understand it? What's, of course, what's, it's, it's a rhetorical statement. Jeremiah's saying nobody can understand how this thing works. It describes the condition of every unregenerate heart. In other words, apart from the gracious revelation of God, the intervention of God, we're just not capable of really understanding ourselves. Accurately diagnosing our problems. Listen to this: First Kings eight thirty nine, where Solomon says this about God: "You alone know the hearts of the sons of men." Solomon, you alone, Lord, you're it. You're the only one who understands people's hearts. That's it. What a statement! So a sinful heart, it's, it's not a new problem, but it's as old as the human race. And so turn, if you would, to Genesis chapter 3, where we'll jump into this first point, the original problem. Our hearts are the problem, which means they're the original problem. In, Deut- or in Genesis two sixteen and 17, God's going to say to Adam, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Super clear, super straightforward, and really encouraging. When you think about it, he's saying to Adam, of all these trees of the garden, you can eat freely, just not this one. And how often do we think of God's law as really too restrictive, too suffocating? And God's saying to Adam, eat of all of this. Look at all the stuff you can do, all the stuff you can eat from and enjoy, just not this one this tree of knowledge of good and evil. Eat of it, you'll die. Genesis 3, 1, the serpent, the devil, is going to say to Eve, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So he's going for her heart here with words. Did God say? And Eve basically replied, yep, no eating this tree or else we die. Basically, she got it right. To which the serpent replied, you will not surely die. And now we have a direct, dishonest, deceitful lie. You won't die. Rather, God's withholding from you. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. And then she's going to take it. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes... That the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate, meaning he was there the whole time, and he ate. And you see so many levels working in one. So you got demonic temptation. You've got an appeal to the body, like it looks good for food. It looks good to the eyes. It's appealing, and it appeals to something in the heart. Just the pride of life. That's why John's going to get at in 1 John 2. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. That he's going going to give that same basic structure in 1 John 2 of temptation that Eve's going to face right here, that Adam's going to face. Lust of the flesh, something the body wants. Lust of the eyes. Looks really good. I want it. Boastful pride of life. And the entire human race is going to rebel in Adam fall into a state of utter depravity in Adam, and all of it in a single verse. That's one of the things that's really fascinating. How much went wrong in one verse? How the entire history of the world is going to take a new track in just a few words. Their condition is going to change from sinless to sinful. Their relationship from God is going to change from friend to enemy, from united to him to alienated. And Adam and Eve, they're going to sense that change Immediately. They went from naked and unashamed in Genesis 2.25 to naked and full of shame in Genesis 3.7. And again, notice how there's body and soul. They see their nakedness, but now they interpret that in an entirely different way. They experience it in a completely different way. There's now shame, guilt, all that enters human history. And so this is the original problem. Everything circumstantially before that was perfect. So there's really no excuse, right? So where did all this come from? Certainly there was outside temptation, but it was a heart rebellion. It's also the evasive problem. If we look at Genesis three seven, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. What could they have done right there? Eyes open, knew they were naked. They feel guilt and shame. What could they have done? Ask God for help. They could have cried out right there. They could have realized, oh, serpent deceived us. We sinned. We did exactly what God said not to do, and now we experience it. We feel it. Cry out. Lord, help us. Now, instead, they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Interesting, isn't it? Just thinking, okay, a physical problem or a physical solution to a spiritual problem. We just have to cover this. The problem is, okay, the nakedness, and, now, and that's what we're ashamed about, and so let's just get dressed. So they sew fig leaves together, made themselves loincloths, and think, okay, this'll work. But really, when you think about it, okay, as the hours go on with fig leaves, what's gonna happen? They're gonna start shriveling, right? They're gonna start getting scratched, and you, you start realizing all the things you do to cover up just don't work anyway. You just give it time. It shrivels and it dies. And especially when you get verse 8, and then you hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. So go from trying to sort of sew fig leaves together, sort of their own righteous deeds, their own way to cover themselves, but then they realize they hear God and they go, that's not going to work. So they hide from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? This is another beginning of a pattern in the Bible of God asking questions he knows the answer to. Right? Even the way the story is tell, told in verse 8, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, kind of gives the impression he's just now showing up, right? When really he's just now making himself known. He's been there the whole time. We always have to realize this with sin, with rebellion, with whatever's going in our heart. He's always present, always sees, always hears. There's just times he makes himself known and times he doesn't times he veils himself in those moments and then times he unveils himself so now they hear him walking and it gives this impression he just now showed up we know he's just now revealing himself to them and so he calls them where are you of course as if it's like hide and seek or something when really what God's doing is trying to draw him out trying to get Adam to respond not get information and he said, well, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. That's a new experience of God, right? Not a reverence, an awe, a fear of the Lord that is wisdom, but an anxiety about God. A kind of afraidness about God that's rooted in, okay, something's wrong with us. Because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, well, who told you that you were naked? Again, God answering Asking questions he knows the answer to. Because nobody told him this. He's now experiencing it. Who told you that? He gets to the point. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Okay, and God knows the answer. He's trying to invite a conversation. Draw out Adam's heart. Confess. Repent. Grieve this. Of course, no. Verse twelve. The man said, "Well, the woman whom you gave to be with me, the woman that you gave—it's this—is y'all's problem. I'm just caught up in the middle of this little arrangement. This wasn't my idea, Lord. You sort of brought all this. She gave me uh, the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Now, interestingly, is that true? Did the woman that God gave him give him the fruit, and he ate? Isn't that interesting?" How we can say truthful things and it completely missed the point. Sometimes we will use the truth to actually avoid the deeper truth. We will talk about all kinds of true things in order to not deal with the most important true thing. So don't think for a minute just because you're saying true things that you're on the right track. And we see it here, like using the truth to actually deflect from the most critical truth. I'm going to talk about the real thing that she did and the real thing, God, that you did to push away the real thing that I did. And so it's plausible. There's real plausible deniability here. And we do it all the time, right? Your spouse comes to you, hey, you said this, you did this, this was wrong, this hurt. Well, you know you. And usually do we just invent a lie there or do we actually say something that truthfully they said or did? Or something that truthfully happened, well, you know what, I just didn't sleep much last night, so I was tired. Or, you know what, I haven't eaten yet today, and so I'm kind of hungry, and, or you know what, there's a lot of stress at work, or this is happening with the kids, and so I'm under a lot of pressure. We'll say all these true things that avoid the actual issue, which is, I did this. I said this and I said and did this because that's what was in me. How often do we say to somebody, oh yeah, I know I said that, I didn't mean it. Is that really how Scripture explains it? Do we Do we often say things we don't mean? Is that really the problem? Or are we really saying, you know what, I'm sorry I said what I meant. I'm sorry I actually expressed what was in there that I just didn't have the energy to hide anymore. That that's probably the best evidence of what's really in us is what comes out when we're tired, when we're hungry, when we're under pressure, when everything's going wrong. If you want the clearest picture of what's really in you, then see what comes out of you under those circumstances. We tend to think, you know, that's an inaccurate picture of me. These are all these unusual circumstances, and therefore that's sort of making all this happen, as opposed to that's probably when we're getting the clearest picture of the the lower levels of what's in here. No, Adam, the woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit I ate. And God, the Lord God said to the woman, well, what is this that you have done? Again, super straightforward question. What is this that you have done? Well, the serpent deceived me. Now, is that true? And I ate. Which should have come first? <laughs> and again, using a true, it's true, serpent deceived her. But the real weight that God's getting at is, I ate. I disbelieved. I rebelled. I accepted what he said rather than what you said. And I ate the fruit you told me specifically not to eat. So we see there, it's, the heart's an evasive problem. There's covering, there's hiding, there's blaming. So Even just seeing how unreliable we are for a real diagnosis of what's wrong. This is, this is one of the things I really saw like coming up out of sort of counseling psychology world and all the doctoral studies and all the research stuff we did and all the is in my own life, which was in shambles, the Lord was sort of really peeling back layers. And yet in all my research world, we're doing all this stuff based on self-report, which is almost what almost all psychological research is based on, self-report. Okay, on a scale of zero to 10, how anxious are you? I'm about a five and we write it down and we just ask that question to a thousand people and then we do this test thing and then at the end we say okay now how anxious are you well now I'm a three okay the thing we did must have worked as if we're a good assessment of how anxious we are as if we've got the right read on ourselves now I realize there's no other way to really get at it but that whole world of when we hear okay scientific studies about people the vast majority of it is based upon people's self-assessment. People sort of sharing, here's what's going on inside me. And they're doing the best they can. Nobody knows any better. But we look at Scripture and go, you know what, are we really the most reliable source of information about what's really going on inside of us? It doesn't make all that research just wrong and worthless. It just means it all has to have an asterisk next to it. We have to say, okay, here's what we kind of found, I think, perhaps. Here's the sense we got about what's going on, generally speaking, for the most part, on average. There just needs to be much more tentativeness. But only when we can say, thus says the Lord, can we actually accept it as truth and what's really happening inside us. Is that evasive maneuvering? We're going to see it through the, the rest of the Bible. It's going to be everywhere. Just Aaron, the, the situation with the golden calf, I think we talked about that last week. Where, yeah, you know, the people are like, we don't know what's happened to this Moses. He's been gone for like a month. It just shows like how fast we're willing to punt God and find a whole new religion. Lord, we'll give you 30 days to prove this thing to us. But after that, so Aaron's going to make this golden calf. Moses is going to come down the mountain and confront him. What did this people do to you? And then Aaron's going to say, Well, I said to them, Whoever has any gold, let them tear it off. So they gave it to me. I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. That's his answer. Did a whole lot happen in the middle of the throwing it into the fire part and the actual calf? Did a whole lot of craftsmanship go in? A lot of molding, a lot of smelting, a lot of shaping this? And I think it's just this beautiful picture of what we do. I don't know, all this stuff went in and then this came out. (sighs) When really, there was a lot of manufacturing work that happened in the middle. A lot of shaping and carving and energy. And we just tend to ignore that part. Ignore all the stuff the heart does in the middle. Which is why John Owen calls the heart, it's a factory for making idols. That's, what, that's, that's where we get that phrase, even an idol factory for idols. It came from John Owen. That was one of his phrases. So, an evasive problem. Also, thirdly, the universal problem. I mean, we may think COVID 19 is contagious, but nothing spreads like sin. Nothing. It gets passed from every set of human parents to their children at conception. David laments it. Psalm 51 Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Romans 5 12, therefore, just as sin came to the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. It's like a cancer that came in at Adam and it spread to everybody. Universal. 100% mortality rate, 100% contagion rate. Everybody except Jesus got it. I've wondered sometimes if even as a culture, we were even 10% as concerned about catching sin as we were COVID, like how that would change. The way we approach life. The way we approach everything. The way we'd interact with the world around us. By the time we get to Genesis 6-5, Scripture defines the problem in, in these terms. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Wow, the sheer number of superlatives in that one verse. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Spread to everyone, just as death spreads to everyone. So that is the universal problem, and that's also the universally resented sort of answer to the human condition. Like, what's wrong with our world? What's wrong with the society that we live in? We usually go, "Well, this is hearts, rebellious hearts, fallen hearts, hearts with a worship problem." It's a universal problem. That's why it was. uh, There was a newspaper. I want to. Yeah, it was in the days of James Macdonald, the Scottish author, and philosopher, and poet, and, but he was a believer, um, or at least had a sense of depravity, and understood depravity, and when a, New York, or a London paper put out a question, basically a survey to England, like, what is the greatest problem in the world today? And then they posted the most common answers, but there was one that caught their attention, and they actually listed it. It was They got a note from James MacDonald, and it said, I am, sincerely, James MacDonald, where they asked, what's the greatest problem in the world that you know of today? I am. Sincerely, James MacDonald. It was the only answer they got of its kind. Isn't that interesting? One person in the entire British Isles thought to think that he was the biggest problem he knew of in the world today. It's a universal problem, but we don't see it. It's also the deep problem. trouble's not shallow, but deep. It's not small, but large. Psalm 38, 3, David says, there's no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. And he's feeling it physically. God's indignation. There's no health in my bones because of my sin. What this doesn't mean is that all physical sickness is because of sin. It's not, you know, health, wealth, prosperity gospel. But rather that sin does take a toll on the body. You know, sin does, has taken a toll on the creation. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They're too heavy for me. So you can imagine like plunging over the side of Niagara Falls and just getting pushed by the water by the ra- down into the bottom and the force and the weight of that waterfall is just crushing down on you. You're not going to get out. You're not going to come up out of that water and swim away. That's the picture David's painting about. This is what it's like for me to be trapped in sin. The weight's too great for me. I can't just swim out. This issue is deep. We're incapable of fixing the condition of our hearts. Shallow change really is the best we have to offer, just mere external cleaning up. Because we can't cleanse our hearts of sin, can't heal this wound. Jeremiah 30, for thus says the Lord, your hurt is incurable. This is God talking. Your hurt is incurable. Your wound is grievous. There is none to uphold your cause. No medicine for your wound. No healing for you. What a statement. There's no medicine to fix your real problem. No cure for it in this world. Because physical problems can sometimes be treated with physical remedies. Medical questions can sometimes be handled with medical answers, but there's just nothing in our hands that can fix the heart. Nothing at our disposal, nothing we're ever going to discover that can reconcile us to God. It's just too big, too deep, too unreachable, too resistant. It's also, fifthly, the invisible problem can't see the hearts of others. This is why we tend to discount it. This is why we don't tend to think about it. This is why we just can't believe that really is the issue because it is invisible. Only the Lord can see it. How much of just what we do relies on what we see, what we hear, what we touch? How much of our philosophy and science, it's, it's about observation. We have to be able to observe this. That's why even um, you know, in all my years of psychology, there, was, there were those who believed in a pure psychology who believed in pure um, psychometric based psychology and what they contended is, you can only study human behavior. So the only true psychology had to be based on the observation of human behavior, which isn't particularly exotic. And so thoughts, emotions, inner affections, all that stuff, you, you just can't see that and so you can't study it. And in some way, that, they were true. they were right. And that's why they believed, you know, the only way to really study people, you just have to rely on what you observe them doing. So what do you do with the heart? It's invisible. It's also why we tend to overestimate outward appearance and underestimate heart. We tend to gauge it off. We even see it when Samuel is going to be sent to Bethlehem to anoint a king after God's own heart. Saul's been rejected. Samuel comes to Bethlehem to throw a feast, and then he goes to the house of Jesse and says, okay, I've got to look at your son. I've got to, you know, the, the, it's one of your sons that God has chosen. Remember, the firstborn is brought first, of course. They're going to be brought in birth order. When the firstborn came, when they came, he, that's Samuel, looked at Iliab, the firstborn, and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Why would he say that? Why did he think, oh, my goodness, this is the guy? Remember what it was? He was big. He was strong. He looked the part. Like so he, he walks up and, Sam, this is Samuel, after all this has already happened with Saul, after everything God said to him about Saul, and he sees Eli and goes, "Oh, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. This has got to be the guy." But the Lord said to Samuel, "Do not look on his appearance." Or on the height of his stature. Because I've rejected him. In other words, there's something happening you don't see, Samuel. You can't get it. There's something in his heart, and there's something about my decision about him that you can't comprehend. I've rejected him. Don't look at that outside stuff. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. That's what he sees. That's why the implications for this, even in the church, are so huge. We'll get to this, especially in a later lesson, but just how much of what we judge of others is what we see based on how they dress, based on how they sound, how they talk, how they act, all the outward stuff. When we really can't see their heart, we can't see what God's doing in them. We don't know. Are we looking at a young believer or an old believer? Are we looking at someone who's God's gifted in this way or this way? So just how quickly we will judge people based on outward stuff. And yet what God's continually saying is don't do that. Don't fall for that. At best, tell yourself, I have no idea what's going on. Right? That's what we ought to say much more often. Oh, do you see what so-and-so did? Yeah, I have no idea what's going on. Why do they do? I have no idea. The Lord sees the heart. That's why we have to pray, Lord, give us eyes to see and patience and understanding and graciousness. and yeah, like the the immoral woman that was in Simon the Pharisee's house, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, and weeping at Jesus' feet. And Simon the Pharisee says if this were a true prophet of God, he would know what manner of woman this was. The assumption is if, if he were really a prophet, he would know what she was like, and he would not let her do this. And what Jesus is about to show when he responds to Simon is that he's the only one in the room that knows anybody. Not only does Jesus know her and who she is, he knows Simon, what's in his heart, what he's thinking. He knows everybody else in the room. And He's able to look at her and go, yeah, she loves much because she's been forgiven much. Just He sees her, knows her, but sees something in her and about her that nobody else notices because they're only looking at the outside. And by outside, I don't just mean physical appearance. I also mean physical behavior, history, story. A man without self control is like a city broken into and left without walls. That's Proverbs 25, 28. We have this sense of what strength is, right? We look at, oh, wow, look at Elliot, man. He's so strong. Well, the question is does he have self control? Because if he doesn't have self-control, then he is the weakest guy in the world. And so again, just, a no, just what God calls strength. <laughs> what God sees on the inside that we don't see. It's also the primary problem. Our hearts are not our only problem. Our bodies can cause problems. Our families can cause problems. Society, government, all kinds of things can cause Problems. But they're just not the primary problem. Turn, if you would, to Matthew 15. Matthew 15. After Jesus called the crowd to him in verse 10, Matthew 15, 10, and he said to them, hear and understand. It's Jesus' way of saying this is really important. Hear and understand this. It's not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth. This defiles the man. And the disciples came and said to him, do you not know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? Which is, by the way, the first response in the world to this kind of teaching. Offense. This angers sinners. The idea that it's not what goes in, that it's what comes out. So the disciples say, hey, don't you realize the Pharisees were really offended by that? Jesus was not inventing a new idea here. He's just repeating the basic theology of the whole Bible, the basic anthropology that's throughout all of Scripture. Washing your hands does not purify your heart. Following an old covenant dietary code does not overcome the iniquity of your soul. The Lord cares about what comes out from the heart, not what goes into the stomach. And notice how just that teaching offended the Pharisees. It offends every self-righteous person. It offends the self-righteousness in all of us. The idea that all that external stuff doesn't impress God. He sees the heart. Because their entire system of self-righteousness and self-justification is based on the idea that keeping the outer person in some kind of good order is what really pleases God. And Jesus comes and says, yeah, God, no, it doesn't. All that doesn't. All those outside influences, what Jesus is getting at, it's like ingredients that are brought into a kitchen. But then the cook cooks them. The cook puts it all together. And so Jesus is saying what matters is the condition of that cook, not all the ingredients in the kitchen. And everybody's going to be given a different set of ingredients to work with in your kitchen different kind of childhood upbringing, different kind of work environment, different kind of government you grew up under, different kind of physical body, different kind of, you fill in the blank. Everybody in here has gotten a different set of ingredients to work with in your condition. Some are better ingredients than others. But Jesus is saying, no, it's, it's, it's the cook. And who controls the cook that's going to determine what kind of meal comes out? And so some here are given, yeah, great Virginia Honey baked ham. Some are given spam, you know. You got five cans of spam. That was your childhood upbringing. But God's saying, "But you can make a great meal with some spam, if the spirit is controlling you, if the spirit is leading you and filling you." Or you can be given a great honey baked ham and all this great ingredients, and it just be a disaster, from God's point of view. If it's the flesh making the meal. That's what Jesus is getting at. Like the, the Pharisees have all these ingredients. Like, hey, look at all our ingredients. And God's like, that's not what matters. How are you going to put those together? What kind of meal are you going to offer to God? Who's ruling your heart? So leads to the seventh part, and that's, it is the causal problem. Keep looking there in Matthew 15, verse 15, where Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. Now think about it a minute. Did Jesus just tell a parable? Uh uh-uh. It's not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth that defiles him. Is that a parable? Or is that just a clear theological point? And yet this is the second common response to this, is just mystification. Like the first thing, it offends us in the flesh. The second thing is we're like, surely not. That can't be true. It so appears like, you've got to explain this mystery to us. Jesus said, are you still lacking in understanding also? Again, it's not that Jesus said no. the answer to that. He's making a point. This should not be so confusing. This is not new. But there's just something in our hearts that just can't grab it. We don't want to grab it. Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, slanders, these are the things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile. What it means is hatred and quarreling and anxiety come from inside me. Is the body involved? Absolutely. Are circumstances involved? Certainly. Are relationships involved? Yes. But he's saying, but but what comes out of me is me. It's the cook put all those ingredients together and then out came the meal despair, jealousy, sinful anger come from my heart. And so all these painful circumstances, terrible circumstances are going to tempt my heart, even provide opportunities to refine my heart. But They don't determine my heart. That's why when you squeeze Jesus and put him over the fire, out came love, out came grace, out came mercy. And I have to ask myself, why isn't that what comes out of me? when I'm under hard circumstances. It must be because I'm not yet fully conformed to the image of Christ, that his grace is not yet fully worked out in me, that his spirit is not actually 100% in control in all these areas of my life, where my, my flesh is still rearing up and exerting itself. So my proud heart may not be the reason for all my pain or the reason for all my hardship, but it is the reason for all my misery. And, that's what, and and I think you can have all kinds of pain and hardship, but that doesn't mean you have to be miserable. The real seat of human misery is the sinful condition of the heart. Jesus looks at the Pharisees, and then he looks at us and says, you want to argue about hand-washing? It's like, wow, you don't see the problem. You don't see the danger. There's this volcanic sort of cesspool of self-infatuated craving and self-serving desire underneath. It's massive. It's deep. It's causal. And Jesus looks at us and at the Pharisees and says, you want to argue about picking grain on the Sabbath? Healing a withered hand in the synagogue service? Someone sitting in your seat at church? Someone singing off-key nearby? The temperature of the room? A child spilling orange juice on your shoes? You want to grumble and fight about masks? Wearing them, not wearing them? Having to park too far from the church building? Elections? Judges? Again, these things are not wrong to care about. They're not wrong to have opinions over. But to get worked up about it? To grumble and complain and fight and argue and fret and worry and grow bitter or angry or judge others over it. Jesus is saying, you're distracted (laughs) from the big problems, and you're distracted from where the Lord's really trying to get his work done, which is in the hearts of his people. Luke 19, and when Jesus drew near and saw the city of Jerusalem, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. Jesus is saying, If only you knew what the real war was. If only you knew, Jerusalem, what the real danger was. If only you knew, because then you'd know what made for your peace. And that's me coming. So the gospel is our only hope. You know what a glorious hope. I couldn't think of a better way to put the point. The gospel is our only hope, and it is a glorious hope. Any questions or comments before we close here with the gospel? We're probably not going to get through all this. Turn to Ephesians 2. Because if we really understand what the Bible says about the heart, then we'll run as fast as we can, as hard as we can, to the cross and just live there. We'll just run as fast as we can to Christ and cling to him and never let him go. I love that line when Mary in the garden, when she sees Jesus and clings to him and he's like, stop clinging to me, I haven't ascended yet. And just this this beautiful statement of, yeah, that's how we ought to be. Um, Ephesians 2.1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That was the problem. And whence you once walked. Isn't that interesting? Dead walking. So there are dead men walking. It was all of us before grace. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. There's a spirit at work among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. See again, body, soul, all given over to sin. And were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And that really was the only way we could be saved. If the problem really was what God said the problem was, then the only way is for him to make us alive, give us a new heart by grace, saving us, raise us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This not of your doing is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Can you know, we see just even in, in vivid detail Paul saying, okay, here's what your problem was. Here was your only hope, and here's what God lavished upon you in Christ. That the heart was, okay, the invisible problem, and the deep problem, and the incurable problem, and the causal problem, and the primary problem, which is why Jesus was your only hope. And that's exactly what God the Father gave you. Him being rich in mercy caused us to be born again. Gave us a new heart. Gave us a heart to believe by faith. Gave us a heart to be reconciled to God. Gave us a heart now with new passions, new desires, new longings, new hopes, new prayers. That's why Paul calls it in verse 7, the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Immeasurable riches. That only Christ can reach our original problem, our evasive problem, our universal problem, our deep problem, invisible, primary, causal problem. And that's why all our attempts to improve the human condition apart from Christ fail. Because they don't really change hearts. You can kind of clean out the outside. You can make a look at it a little bit, like I said a couple weeks ago, it's like arranging deck furniture on the Titanic. That's what human methods for human improvement are. We're just going to make it look better. We're going to get the violinists out on the deck and just make this as attractive as possible as it goes down. But yeah, that's not what God's trying to do with his people. Now, he'll throw the deck furniture all over the place. <laughs> he'll make all the violinists play off-key. There'll be all kinds of ugliness all over the place, but he's fixing that hole in the boat. And he's actually putting you in a new boat. And all of that so that he can show the whole world just how gracious he is. That's what he's saying here in Ephesians 2. Just so he can show the world just how mighty, how powerful, how good, how kind, how patient, how gracious he is. So the implications for us are humility. Our trouble is deep. It is personal. It belongs to us. It is primarily about our heart condition, nothing else. So there's just no suitable excuses before God or others. A lot of mediating factors, but just one causal factor. And so I sin because I'm a sinner. I'm not a sinner because I sin. Does that make sense, that difference? Like the reason I sin is because I am a sinner and being redeemed by grace. It's not, okay, I sin, that's what makes me a sinner. It's much more condition of the heart. And that's what God's remedy. And that's very humbling. Now, how can I look at anybody else and be judgmental? How can I look at anybody else and be condescending? How can I look at the, even the world around me and go, oh, what's wrong with all those wretches? You know, we kind of walk over to Jesus, right, and put our hand around him. And go, man, Lord, what are we going to do with all these people? Look around the church. Jesus, just tell me what you need me to do, and I'll, I'll help. And the Lord's like, um, you know don't don't approach me that way you are them we are among them and he's redeeming his people out from them so that he would get the glory he would get the praise so it's, that's that's how it's meant to humble us this doctrine of the heart it's also meant to create dependence dependence upon grace upon mercy upon the lord intervening upon him providing redemption so again if you're really honest about what's inside you do you feel confident in yourself If you're really honest about the things you think, the temptations you feel, the thoughts that come into your mind, the things you might do or not do when nobody else is looking, when you really are honest about all that, do you feel confidence that you can make it work? Or do you feel this great sense of dependence on mercy, on grace, on the spirit of God ruling you, ruling me? Patience is an implication. Toward ourselves, toward others. Because our hearts are the problem, change is slow. Change is difficult. Because it's heart, not external. You can go get a new wardrobe this afternoon. right? You can redo your house this week. You can learn how to wash your hands differently. You can go to church more. You can just put in more time with external stuff. But changing your heart that's hard work. That's slow. That's like dependent upon God. That takes time. It's crockpot work, not microwave work. And we like microwave work, right? Like we want change yesterday. So I love how, even in modern microwaves, you notice how there's now just a button for one minute? Isn't that amazing? So you only have to push it a button once rather than three times. Because we don't have to put one, zero, zero, start. Because that's like four buttons. I just want to hit one. And I'm like, that's, that's us, isn't it? Can we cut out some of these steps here? And just sanctification doesn't work that way. We're always asking, okay, God, what's the button i got to push? What's the, what's the shortcut? What's the?" And he's like, there's no shortcut. This is heart surgery. This is heart transformation. This is slow. This is dependent upon him. So that even by the end, none of us get the glory. Because right? in the end, there's going to be no other explanation, God did this in us god did this in me you got a couple minutes for questions comments anything could be a question could be a comment statement reflection Yeah, so the question is, so is, is you're ministering to someone else or someone's ministering to you and, and it just seems that you're trying to get to the invisible things. You're trying to get to what's going on in the heart, but there still seems to be blame shifting, dodging. Even they're saying, I don't really know what's going on. You're saying, I don't see what's going on. So to me, that's why there has to be so much prayer in the ministry of the word. So it's one place we're gonna start is really asking, like David said, Lord, search me and try me. See if there be any unbecoming way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. And so that has to be one prayer that enters into all ministry. And so one question I have is, okay, is that what you're praying for? Are you praying that you would really see the truth about what's going on? And I have to say that for me personally, that's occasionally my prayer. I often throw it, yeah, Lord, show me, try me, uh, lead me in the way everlasting. All right, off we go. But when do I really stop and go, all right, Lord, (laughs) Like, you got to search me. Please try me. I, get at whatever you got to get at. Expose whatever you have to expose. Bring out whatever you need to bring out to lead me in the way everlasting, to conformity. And I just think, and so I think a lot of it starts with actually really meaning that prayer, actually asking God to do it. Because how many of us want sanctification no matter what the cost? Christ-likeness no matter what the cost. I think most of us would go, well, maybe here. Not here, just not here, but here. I think I'm kind of that. And so we're praying, Lord, please, please make that my greatest desire. Like, sanctification no matter what the cost. No matter what the cost to the image. No matter what cost to how other people might see me. No matter the cost to my own image of myself. Which is the one we're also fighting to preserve. To be able to look in the mirror and go, you know what, John? You're, you're doing okay. You're in pretty good shape. Yeah, you need a few tweaks here and there, but, I mean, nothing that needs an overhaul. Whereas really what, yeah, when God starts to reveal and show that stuff and do work, it's, it's not pretty. So I think that prayer becomes important. I think going to passages, especially where Christ is saying the things that he's saying to his disciples, to the Pharisees and saying, is this, is this who you want working on you? Do you want Christ doing this work? Do you, want, do you trust him? with yourself? Do you trust his spirit? And if so, then don't be afraid of me, (laughs) you know. Don't be afraid of what I might see. Don't be afraid of what others might see, because anything that's in there, God already sees, and you can trust him. Um, I think a third thing, too, is just to keep going back to grace and what grace offers, what grace provides, so that just those sort of barricades we put up to to sort of not let the light in, I think it's sometimes because we just don't see a way forward if we're really honest about what's going on, but yet grace is always that way forward. And so I think you have to also keep coming back to that. Um, A fourth thing is just to tell people, you know, God will have his way with you. We just get to decide if it's going to be kicking or screaming or not. Like, he will sanctify you. And so his plan A is humility. His plan B is humiliation. And so... Which do we want? <laughs> you know, We can humble ourselves beneath the mighty hand of God. Or he will find a way to just make it all hit. It's like with David, right? David had opportunities to have with Bathsheba and Uriah to come clean, and he just didn't. So God's like, okay, we're going to confront you, we're going to draw this out, and then we're going to put it in the Bible. Like, to think about that a minute. Everybody, for the rest of history, will know what you did. But... We're going to get to heaven, and that's not who we're going to be looking at. We're not going to be looking at David going, oh, David, what did you do? it's going to be, wow, what a Savior. <laughs> what a Redeemer. What a... But, so, so again, God is not invested in our image. But he is invested in our souls, in our redemption. And, and it's this kind of theology of the heart that helps us begin to see that. Let's uh, go to him now in prayer. Well, Father, we do thank you that yeah, you see the problem clearly. You announce it to us clearly, and you're so gracious, you're so patient, you're so kind, you're so merciful to send a redeemer of our hearts, a savior of our hearts, knowing that when you get our hearts, you'll get our bodies as well. You'll get everything else as well. And so we offer ourselves to you in faith. We ask that you would humble us, that you would give us patience, that you would give us prayerfulness, that we would truly desire to be conformed to the image of your Son And that you would do that work in us for your glory and for your namesake. Amen. All right. Thanks, y'all.